City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. And when you think of the Wing, most people think of the Tony Awards. Well, the Wing is more than that. It's, for example, these seminars, which are coming to you from the City University Graduate Center of New York, located in the heart of the Theatre District on 42nd Street. Although we created the Tony Awards, it goes on and on and on doing the things that it did many, many years ago when it was first started. <clears throat> it is the canteens. Those wonderful canteens, the stage door canteens, started our hospital shows. And today, the hospital shows continue. We bring live professional theater into hospitals and into the homes so that people who are in the homes and cannot see theater are brought theater to them. Saturday Theater for Children, perhaps the most important of our programs, teaches children the habit of going to the theater on Saturday mornings. They line up, they make the commitment, they buy a ticket, and they decide to go to the theater. This is a habit that we hope will be the important part of the audience of the future. These seminars, too, are an outgrowth of the Wings Professional School where stars such as Jose Ferrer and Harold Prince and Maureen Stapleton taught acting, and Ray Bolger and Martha Graham taught dance, and Richard Rogers taught music. They brought their craft to the school so that people could go from one room to another to know what it is to work in the theater. The crossover of knowing what the director's role, what the playwright's role, what the actors' functions are, and what the producers and the crafts of the theater need to contribute. And that's why the Wing has brought these seminars to you, which are becoming increasingly important, both to the profession and to the people who go to the theater. Today's seminar is devoted to the performance. And we have, as always, a wonderful panel. And to introduce them to you will be our co-moderators. Jean Dalrymple, who is an actor, a producer, a director, a founding member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing, <coughs> and president of Light Opera of Manhattan. Edmund Wilson, theatre critic for the Wall Street Journal and director of the Center for Advanced Studies in the Theatre Arts at the Graduate <coughs> School of the City University of New York. Mr. Wilson will shed his role as critic today and bring his knowledge and delight in the theater and for the theater to you. 
And so, without any more ado, I'm going to turn this panel over to Jean Dalrymple and to Ed Wilson, who will conduct it. Thank you. We'd like to start by introducing the panel, which, uh, as Isabel says, is really an illustrious one, and we want to thank them for being with us today. I'm going to start on my far right with John Malkovich, who is a triple threat person in the theater. As an actor for the stage, uh, he works with the Steppenwolf Company. He's been in so many plays, I won't attempt to name them, but particularly plays by Sam Shepard and uh, Lanford Wilson, and it's a Lanford Wilson play that he's now on Broadway in, Burn This, and it's a truly explosive performance. Uh, for those of you who've seen it, you realize that. He's also uh, a director with plays such as Bomb and Gilead, and of course a screen performer uh, on, with uh, things like The Killing Fields and The Places in the Heart. Next to him is Courtney Vance, who is both a Yale and Harvard man. Uh, he went to Harvard College, he went to the Yale Drama School, he spent uh, two summers with the Eugene O'Neill uh, Playwrights Project and with Shakespeare and Company. Uh, he too has been in films, I think it's Hamburger Hill that's currently out, and of course he's best known right now for his performance as the son of James Earl Jones uh, in Fences. To my immediate right is Dana Ivey, and I just said to her that she certainly looks different from the time when I last saw her. She is in a delightful play called Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, she ages 25 years in the course of the play, but she starts out at age, what do you start out as? 72. 72, and goes to, <laughs> into her 90s. Uh, it's a remarkable bit of, uh, bit of makeup. Uh, Dana has won the Clarence Derwin Award. She's won several Obie Awards. She was in Sunday in the Park in George on Broadway, as well as other shows. So we're delighted to have her, too. Jean? And I will begin on my far left with that wonderful actor, Robert Lupone, who was absolutely splendid in the <laughs> late-night <laughs> comic. You really were. <laughs> he really held the play together. <laughs> And, of course, he's been seen in many plays in New York, off-Broadway, and he's been in TV and films. We've all seen him and enjoyed him very much, and we're very glad you're here with Thank us. You. And uh, next to him is Jane Summerhays, and you've all seen her, I'm sure, because me and my girl have been running forever, and she's been in it all this time, <laughs> simply <laughs> enchanting audiences with her wonderful sense of comedy. Uh, her scenes with uh, now Jim Dale and before Robert Lindsay are the high points of that uh, comedy, really marvelous. Some people are born with that great talent of just being funny. She is. And it's unusual for a good-looking girl to be funny. Usually, <laughs> usually comedians are rather strange-looking. But here is Miss Summerhays. And right next to me, of course, is Morgan Freeman, who works with, with Dana Ivey in, in Driving Miss Daisy, and that is, as Ed said, a marvelous play, a real play. And he's very well known. He's been seen, well, I, I, as long as I can remember, I've seen him around doing marvelous performances on Broadway and off Broadway. And, uh, of course, you all know him. Uh, he's uh, Morgan Freeman. Uh, since this, uh, since, yeah, 
Since this is a seminar about actor training and about the profession of acting, uh, I'd really like to begin by asking each member of the panel to respond to a question, uh, perhaps about a turning point or a crucial <coughs> event in their early days or in their actor training that made a real difference to them. Perhaps a teacher of acting, an acting class, a production they were in, a production they saw, something that made a real difference that inspired them and determined them to make acting their profession. And uh, to start this off, I'd like to turn to the youngest member who is closest to when that probably happened, uh, Courtney Vance. Um, well, I think uh, I'm, I know which what event it was for me. It was uh, I, um, after I graduated, you know, while I was at Harvard my, in my third year, I did a workshop with um, Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts. And um, they really um, got me out of myself and out of my body and got me in touch emotionally. I did, a, a, I was an apprentice there for one summer, uh, for, for two summers actually, and then the, the second summer I came back in my senior year and did uh, another seminar, and I mean another uh, workshop, and really kind of grasped their work and, um, um, and it really kind of laid the base for me emotionally for to go on to Yale and get some technical training, That's which is what I nice. did. Yeah. Very good. Dana, what was a time for you? Uh, I've wanted to be an actress ever since I can remember, yeah. and I think one of my earliest memories of just being impressed with the magic of the stage was when I saw my own mother play in Joan of Arc, and um, in a community in Atlanta um, community theater. <clears throat> it was, uh, I think I was about eight years old, and it was so magical to see my mother in this, you know, sort of apotheosis of a role. It was just amazing. And uh, shortly after that, she took me to see Cornelia Otis Skinner in something, and it was the two events just sort of set in me, and it was, I just thought, I want to be where they've been, up there on the stage. When did you actually start? formal training, when and where? In college. I went to Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, and I have a degree in theater from right. them. I, John, I know something about John he may not realize I know. Uh, there is a gentleman who is a graduate of the City University PhD program who's currently chairman of the Department of Theater at Illinois State, and I think you were, weren't you at Illinois State with, uh, and that's really where the Steppenwolf group started, wasn't it, at Illinois State? Mm -hmm. I don't know that w whether that's the, the point that you would talk about in response to the question, but it might have something to do with that. Yeah, if, if I have decided to become an actor, I mean, <laughs> 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 that it would, would have been when we started Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, which was, sort of was the day we graduated. What, college. had you talked about that, because this is rather unique, that a group of people from a college theater program would move like that and found a company that would become so well-known as Steppenwolf. How, what, what was happening in the period just as you were leaving college and how did you all really decide to go together to Chicago to start that? Um, I, I think at that time at that particular school there just sort of happened to be a group of somewhat like-minded people and um, 
And uh, I don't know, we just all felt like it, sort of, I guess. And um, I met the people late in my senior year because I had transferred there and had seen some of their work and had really enjoyed it a lot. And we just decided to do it. How many of you went, actually? There were ten of us. Ten of you. And that, that was really a, a nucleus that mm -hmm. stayed together for quite a while, wasn't it? Yes, eight of them are still there. That's really quite quite remarkable. Robert, oh, excuse me, go ahead. I was just going to ask. Were you go going to ask? I was going to ask Robert about one of. I was just trips. going to say we ought to have a few words on well, this. Well, I was just going to go with that. I agree, Gene. I have uh, three responses. Uh, I first got involved with dance when I saw my sister at seven, and I, she was in a PTA recital. And that was when I said I wanted to be in the theater. Um, when I met Tudor at Juilliard uh, was a very, very major turning point for me as an artist. And when I saw The Seahorse down at Circle Rep with Ed Moore was another d decisive point in my life about acting. Um, as is the show I just closed, a decisive point about me in acting. <laughs> but, so that, uh, that's me. <laughs> the Seahorse was a lovely play. I liked it a lot. Yes, and, and he's it was really a, a very good writer. Isn't he? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I liked it a lot. I liked what it had to say, and I liked the kind of style in which it... Um, I liked the theatrical expression of it. And know. the way he played the role himself. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Jane, what about you? Well, I started as a dancer at age three. Um, in Utah, actually, they had a very good dance teacher there. Were you on point? <laughs> no, <laughs> I wanted to be. Um, and then I think the thing that really caught me was, um, as a child, when I went to see um, the touring company of My Fair Lady, and I just adored it. And I started doing musicals uh, in the summer right festivals on. and all. I was sort of a tall, ungainly <laughs> kind of creature when I was a teenager. And so I would dance. I trained at the university there with Ballet West. And um, I would dance with the big kids, you know. Yeah. So I got to do the summer festivals and things. And I uh, started doing musicals, and I adored it. Really? What, what musical were you in first? And what did you play? Destry Rides Again. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Just right for you. Yes. And Morgan, I was in the chorus. Why don't we hear from Morgan, sitting here so quietly thinking? <laughs> I was sort of grabbed by the scruff of the neck and flung onto the stage. <laughs> oh, this is truth. When I was uh, about eight years old, and uh, again when I was 12, and I mean by that, that uh, uh, teacher I had, and I remember distinctly when I was 13 years old, I did something to a girl that I shouldn't have done, like pulled a chair off my or stuck her pigtails in the ink, or one of those things you do when you're trying to get a girl's attention. <laughs> and she meant to murder me for that. And I was running down the hall, and a teacher grabbed me by the, like this, and took me into a room and thrust me in and slammed the door. And an English teacher said, can you act? <laughs> <laughs> and from there, from then on, it was like a foregone conclusion throughout this little town that I lived in in Mississippi that I was going to be an actor, but that wasn't my foregone conclusion because I wanted to be a fighter pilot and fly jet planes and, you know, be a hero <laughs> until I was uh, in the Air Force and sitting in the cockpit of a jet plane and realizing that we're never going to be in the cameras, you know, and nobody was ever going to say cut and whoever I killed wasn't going to get up. So, 
that the moment of truth came then, and that was in 1958. Where and were you? I was in... Uh, in the United States? <laughs> yeah, I was. I was at uh, North Island Naval Air Station outside oh. San Diego. <laughs> I was just walking distance to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start the theater itself? I started the theater itself. I, gra I got out of, uh, out of the Air Force in 1959, and uh, I, I went to uh, school at uh, Los Angeles City College. And that sort of, it was for me, it was a, a matter of trying to elbow my way in. I was trying to actually get into movies, you know, I was in Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood. And that didn't work. And a friend of mine sat up all night once, a guy I met, and said, do you want to be an actor? You don't want to be in Hollywood. You want to be in New York. And what are you talking about? He says, that's where, that's where you, and it turns out to be so. And then when I finally did manage to get here and get hired to do a play, I had the luck to get into a play with Stacey Keach and Vivica Linfus. I mean, two oh. people who are just absolute, you know, in terms of craft. And it was at that, during that period, rehearsal, and I began to get some inkling of what it was besides raw talent, you know? Yeah. Because for me, it always been like, you know, say the words and it would come out right. What play was it? It was called The Nigger Lovers. It was written by George Tabori, oh, Vivica's yes. husband at the mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And it was a two-part uh, thing. On, uh, it uh, starred Stacy and Vivica and me and a guy named Jim Spruill, one of my mm -hmm. first. Good. New York play at the Orpheum Theater so in 1967. You got off to a good start. Yeah. I got off oh, to yes. a blazing start. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. What was your the, first play, Courtney? Uh, first play was Story Theater. Uh, oh, really? I think at uh, Harvard. With Paul, with Paul yeah. Sills? Or? I wish, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not, I'm young. <laughs> He's still around. I know he is. <laughs> Um, but uh, that was before my time. Um, I think I was 10 when they did that or something. Um, but uh, it was, uh, I think it was Story Theater, and uh, I, um, actually, I, I, I ran track my first year at, at Harvard, and I, it wasn't the same as high school. It uh, was more intense. <laughs> so I kind of gave it up after my second year and uh, started to audition for shows and uh, started going like that. I wanted to ask, because I, I, I really have something that occurred to me about everybody up here uh, in terms of something that they are doing now or have done recently uh, that it seems to me is a, an enormous challenge, and I think it would be interesting to know how they meet it. Um, John, you come on in Burn This. For those of you who haven't, who haven't seen Burn This, uh, he comes on uh, as the brother of someone who has died and in this loft in lower Manhattan and meets this woman who is a dancer choreographer who is a good friend of his brother's. They have not met before and he comes in at night uh, banging on the door uh, but he comes in at, a, at an enormously high pitch and I, I just uh, wondered in terms of having to do that every night and then at matinees that it must be an enormous challenge to come on with the explosive force and with the, the, the literally the high in more ways than one that you have to come on with. What, what, how do you prepare for that and what does that? 
Well, I'm not really much of a preparer. I mean... Do you just do it? Then? Just do it. Yeah. Because you come on like gangbusters. I mean, it's... Uh, um, <laughs> I just do it. You do? I, I, did um, you, in rehearsals, did you, I mean, did, where did you find, find it so that you were able to, to come on? Because it really isn't, you come in on such a, you're, you're as high as you ever are in the play at the, in the very first moment. Yeah. I don't know, I suppose I just sort of remember the, the last time I walked on the street in New York. <laughs> his, his character is complaining about New York streets and somebody who's trying to take his parking place. So I <laughs> In a sense, then, you do prepare by remembering. Yeah, I suppose so. But I, I don't really... Um, I find that it sort of cripples me if I think about things too much. I, I really, I'm not an intellectual and I really can't do that. I just have to... But go. obviously, through some means, you found that character. Because one of the interesting things about you as an actor is that you, each character is so unique, is so different. I mean, that you play both in films and on stage. And so obviously you found the uh, energy and the uh, kind of... Well, and on... Anger and everything else in that character. I mean, they, I think that's really because uh, it's very well written. I mean, as far as being unique in something, I think it's because it's uniquely written. And it sounds like Helen Hayes. Mm -hmm. You know, she's, she always says, don't ask me how I do it, I just do it. <laughs> and that is, I think they're great actors. I think he's a very great actor and Helen's a very great actress. And that is their gift to be able to do that. They don't have to explain it or meditate or go into a fit or anything else. They just do it. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody else do it that way? <laughs> Courtney, you have a, a, a really uh, powerful scene with James Earl Jones. and. How did you all, working on that in rehearsals, I mean, was that something that you had to work for and find and so forth? Because that is, and that's a, that's a, a big moment. It's the, it's, the the, bat. it's the biggest moment in the play, of course, and the big confrontation between father and son. Right. Well, I, I, I don't think it's the biggest. I think the biggest one is between James Earl and his wife. Yes. Um, but uh, um, I, it, for me, it's, it's like music. I, I also agree it's well written. And... Uh, um, it was, we've done the play now, for, we are going on two and a half years, we've all been together. And it's been uh, trial and error, um, trying to find uh, the right note to come, in, at least for coming in, because I do come in uh, kind of at, at a high note also. So it's, it's kind of uh, coming in at the right note, and we, two or three, um, you try one uh, thing and that, the director says, eh, try, so good. try over here, and I go over there, and he says, eh, come back over here. And so I find out this is where I need to go, and then I, within that range, I can I'm free. Um, but uh, uh, James Earl and I, with the bat, um, we, it's it's really like a, a a piece of music. Also, I know his moves, and he knows mine, and uh, it's it's really been uh, a feeling each other out, and uh, um, so that's how that works. Speaking of feeling each other out, one of the most remarkable tandem performances really in a long time and in New York now is Dana and Morgan. And uh, 
that's uh, really extraordinary the way you all play together. I mean, did, did, well, but uh, did, was that something what that? <laughs> <laughs> How did that evolve for the two of you? Did that just slowly in rehearsal or? Because well, it's because you all really have to be so sensitive to each other. Some slowly in rehearsal, and some um, I don't know. This is one of those projects that just has seemed to be blessed from the very beginning. It sort of had a a hand from on high. We just it's all been a very um, everybody's understanding about what is required has been the same, so that there's never been any uh, confusion or complication about somebody's going off the wrong, the wrong direction. Morgan's from Mississippi, I'm from Atlanta. We just know who these people are so well that we have um, just, you know, just managed to, to play into that. And uh, there's, you know, obviously there were little moments in rehearsals where you clarify something here or there, but the basic understanding has been there all along, and the basic understanding of what the relationship is is very clear to both of us. And so um, it's just been something that has eased along. You, it's not anything that you've had to sit down and try and work out. It's really wonderful <coughs> to watch them because they start as sort of enemies, not, not Morgan, <laughs> but Dana. She just doesn't like this idea of uh, having a driver, and she particularly doesn't want this one as a driver. And the way she gradually <coughs> has to listen to him and like him and in the end love him is so beautiful to see. It's one of the loveliest plays and two of the loveliest characters I've seen in many, many years. Oh, how nice. I really Thank congratulate you. you. Well, both. Morgan's the one who described it as a love story. Um, yeah. It really is kind mm -hmm. of an odd couple love story yes. and, and his gentility and dignity really sort of seduces her because it's yeah. so fine and wonderful, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Did you audition for both of you? I only had a meeting with the director and the author. The author knew I was from Atlanta, and I was told that he wanted me all along, and met with the director, uh, whom I hadn't known before, and we chatted about it, and they offered it to me. <laughs> I was in um, Minneapolis at the Guthrie. I mean, you know, bless Jesus, they called and said, do you want to do this? I had, I had been at the uh, Playwrights Horizon to see another play called um, um, Doesn't matter. Never mind. Doesn't matter. <laughs> but they have this little blurb. None of young as Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> they have this little blurb on the wall telling what what plays were going to be done the following season, and it, driving Miss Daisy. It said right there, and it was, I read it. You know, it's driving Miss Daisy, Leon Yuri, blah blah blah. I mean, uh, Alfred Yuri, blah 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 blah. And I said, Oh, this sounds very interesting. Who do I talk to about? doing a play here. And I was down in the lobby and I looked around very officious, like I'm, I'm of course <laughs> nobody was looking, nobody was there but me. <laughs> I, but then uh, Ron Lagamacino called me and said, uh, would you be interested in, well he didn't call my agent, called him because he had called them and said, would they want to know if you'd be interested in doing the play at the Playwrights Horizon? I was like, what? Driving mistakes? I said, yes! <laughs> <laughs> so it was like that, you know. And then, I, I said, of course, I have to read the play, you know. Yeah. And, and they, <laughs> they sent me a copy of the play, and I read it, you know, and uh, I'm getting ready to toot my own horn now. So, so those of you who don't want to hear it, club years, I'm getting ready to do it. <laughs> I read the play, and then I called back, and I said to Ron, I said, Ron, this is, this is wonderful. I said, but don't you want an older actor? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, 
we thought about that, and we decided we would go for quality. <laughs> That's good. I'll tell you, my head went boom. Right there. I still have the same agent. <laughs> still got the same agent. Yeah. That's marvelous. Jane, you had, you've had an, uh, an interesting experience because it, me and my girl is a very physical thing for you. And uh, with that physical comedy. And playing it with Lindsay first and now with Jim Dale. What, what has happened in terms of playing it with the two different men? Because they must be, I mean, they're both marvelous comic performers, but it mu there must have been adjustments you had to make. To do well, that. their timing is different. I mean, they're two different people. And um, that was one of the challenges for me for working with, uh, with Jim, and that is to try, after doing it for over a year, with Robert to make that adjustment. And it, it's very interesting. I've learned a lot um, about it. You really can't. It's not something you can sit down and say, well, I'll make this adjustment. It just happens. Mm -hmm. And it's instinctive, and it happens like that, or it doesn't. I think when you're playing um, comedic scenes like this, you, you don't have time to talk or to think about it. You just do it. Um, <laughs> and it depends. I mean, the audience plays an enormous role in it. Does it there change? are really does three of us doing yeah. the scene. Does it change from night to night? Yes, it does. And new things happen all the time, um, which is what makes it interesting. People always say, how can you do the same thing over and over and over? Well, it's never the same. Mm. It just never is. Um, sometimes the scene can gain a minute or so. Really? Uh, yeah. Because of the Depending on what's happening, yeah. Because yeah. the orchestra has a, a number of cues. I'm talking about now the, the sofa scene. Sofa scene, yeah. that's the... The orchestra has a number... It's a musical piece, and the orchestra has a number of um, cues. And they just hold for the laughter, and then, then they come in. Some, some nights the laughter's not there, which is terrifying. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then once in a while you get a, an audience that's just... You yeah. know, you have to just stop and wait. Right. And that's what's exciting about it. Is that come, does that come from having worked in front of audiences over and over again? Or does that come from some part of training that said to you, there will be times like this? Where do you gather this timing, which is hard to find today? Uh, there, there was a time when people were on the road and, they, and there were all kinds of places. Well, that is a problem comics. because there used to be a training ground in right. vaudeville and we don't how then it was the borscht belt, you mm -hmm. know. <laughs> we, I worked with Mickey Rooney for some time, mm -hmm. and I think I learned a lot from him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, he's an absolute master at it, right. yeah. and at manipulating an audience. Uh, um, and I had to be free with him because I never knew what he was going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, he just, I just never knew, I mean. And, and I learned a lot about it, and also I learned to relax in it. Playing with him, you had the equivalent of vaudeville training. Really. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. the timing is the most important yeah. thing of all. And, and I, I had that ear. And, you know, you watch people who are just brilliant, and it either sinks in or... Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Robert, I... Oh, no, I wanted to ask Robert, because you were really quite good in Late Night Comedy. You were really marvelous. And uh, this, what, what I wanted to ask you, because we've been talking about plays where the play is a success story, and but every actor has to go through what you went through last week and uh which is which is is really the in which you were because the actor is the most exposed person i'll say and uh you were you were exposed in you quite frankly you know material that was not, not nearly up to you 
And that's true in terms of songs and lyrics and in terms of the book and everything. Um, you must have felt terribly uh, exposed, and yet you acted as if you believed in it all the way, which I thought was really a Wonderful. tremendous tribute to you. But it, it must have been not easy for you. I mean, I don't know where along the way you realize, because everybody believes in their material as, for, as, as long as they can and so forth. They have to. But I knew the first day of rehearsal. You did? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> part of my, I have a theater company myself, much in the tradition of John Steppenwolf in, called Manhattan Class Company, and I've been working as an actor making a living, but on, my passion is developing new plays. And I've been doing that for like 15 years now. And so I have that combination of dramaturgical skill, um, which oh, I think only, I think, helps an actor. Um, and that comes from experience and doing it, quite frankly. Uh, I knew the first day of rehearsal. I asked the producer and the director both, first of all, why they want me, and then second of all, why they want to do this play. Um, uh, my supposition about myself was that I was not funny. You know, I'm known as villains. I do a lot of villains. And so I said, why did you want me, particularly as a stand-up comic? Because <laughs> I don't have any experience as a stand-up comic. Um, and I have done comedies, but I'm primarily known in this business doing villains. In any event, they said I was funny. And then the, their response to the... Their, their, their response to doing this play was they raised the money and they believed in it. Well, out of town, you know, that awful reality hits that... The, the, the professional judgments were completely off-kilter. I mean, there was just no play, no book, <laughs> no, <laughs> across the boards. I mean, the review stated exactly what the problems were. Um, so I knew the first day going in that I was going to have trouble with this material. The challenge for me was to first again to be able to develop the skills of singing and dancing and acting all simultaneously. And most importantly for me, could I take on this, the challenge of being a stand-up comic in one confronting an audience. And and I suffered through weeks and weeks of rehearsal doing bad jokes that didn't get any laughs and even out of town and also in New York for that matter <laughs> that didn't, you know, suffered through that kind of thing. But it was the best experience for me. Really? Oh, it was wonderful because, first of all, I got to a sense of freedom. It's not that the, the Titanic, you're on the Titanic and it's sinking and give up. It's like all of a sudden, you know, we all want success. I mean, that's what we all aspire to. Part of the reason we're in this business is to be approved of, to be accepted. When you don't get it, you have to go to deeper resources. And my, my situation as of doing that play, going in, I had to find much deeper resources than I've ever had to find because I was overwhelmed with the material, because I was on stage for two hours, literally. I was going from a scene that was quote-unquote supposedly dramatic or funny into a number that made no sense, into a dance that made no sense. And, and yet, the, the, the testimonial to the actor is, as you just said, I was able to pull it off. That gives me a tremendous amount of confidence. I mean, I would like to be here with a success, obviously. And I'm grateful that I, the reviewers are very kind to me. But I'm telling you, the way to learn about the theater and the way to learn about yourself as an actor is to do things like I just did. Yeah. Because that is the training ground for, and I'm still young and learning, and yeah. that's the way I want to stay. I mean, successful actors who have not had that experience are, are missing something. Let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Baptism by fire. <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 had, I was got to a point doing this role where I was, the director gave me, trusted me, which was a blessing, and he said, you have the right in this rehearsal to cut up process. On stage, I was able to ad-lib every night 
and found in myself lines that were funnier than the text. And, and I mean, things that came out of me that I never would have expected to be there. Had you ever seen any stand-up comics? No, I had no time. <laughs> I have no, I have never seen, except tapes. They gave me a couple tapes, Robert Klein tapes, and I watched him. And mm -hmm. I had an image of Jerry Lewis when I first went into rehearsal, and I lost that quickly and became Bob LaPalma stand-up. And it was, it was great fun. The audience, yeah. in a funny sort of way, interestingly enough, in previews, I was getting a lot of laughs. Mm -hmm. The second night after, the first night after reviews, I did two hours and got two laughs, yeah. the entire show. And then the following night, everybody sort of adjusted. It was fine, and then we closed, obviously. Um, I think it deservedly closed. I'm not at all ashamed that it, I'm glad that it, that it closed, because I think if you're going to go with a standard um, of Broadway or American theater, I think it had a purpose. I think it was very educational for me. Uh, and I think that uh, it, 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 you know, why they ever went in with it in the first place, I don't know. I, just I wanted to ask you, why, why do you think that they insisted upon doing it and, and doing it on Broadway? They believed in it. Nobody goes in to do a flop. No. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, no, but, I think uh, they believed Would in this it. have had more of a chance off-Broadway? I think so. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, uh, the, eco uh, the economy of it doesn't make sense. There was too many people in the cast, but it was too big, a, too small a story for a Broadway stage. No matter what it the happened actor... happened very frequently. Right, yes. no matter what the mm -hmm. actor can do or not do. I mean, the fact of the matter is we're beholden to the material. This material was not up to snuff, yeah. period. Have some of the rest of you had experiences of, like Roberts, maybe not precisely, where you've learned from something that was a... Uh, it wasn't I would just say we all have yeah, actually. Yeah. Everybody seems to be nodding. Yes. But, but I think his point about freedom yes. is a great one, uh, and it's something I was trying to say earlier. I mean, I did a show that closed out of town, and literally we never did the same show twice because they rewrote it as we were performing it, and we would get uh, we would get to this scene one day and perform it the next, and it just kept changing. It was never, and after a while, you just sort of wing it. Yeah. You know, you just say, what am I going to do? You know, yeah. you just wing it. And um, there is a great deal of freedom that and comes from resource. that. And you yeah. learn where your strengths are. I, I performed the show, I think, for a total of four weeks. After the reviews in New London, which were <coughs> typical in this particular show. Um, were they similar in New York? Yes. They finally decided to have what they call change of concept. You know, <laughs> they finally decided to do something. This is after four weeks of rehearsal. In any event, from, from New London until opening night, I did not do a single show the same much. And I'm not talking about different scenes. I'm talking about, okay, tonight we're taking this number in the end of the show and putting it in the beginning of the show. And this number in the beginning of the show, we're just transferring those two. And, and, and the book... I, I'm telling you, I literally did the show. My dresser was on the, in the aisles, or what do you call it, on, in the wings, and I had a flashlight and had five pages of dialogue and read them and went on stage. That's, That's exactly, and then you get out there and it's, and I'm telling you, I would do it again in a second. It's I would do it again in a second. Yeah. Pardon me? No, I would. It sounds like, it sounds like, a, a, it sounds like a modern version of Commedia dell'arte in terms yeah. of that scenario change. No, it sounds more like Moose Murders. <laughs> <laughs> With all due respect to Moose Murders, of course. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, the thing is, the thing is that what I got out of this man is a, is a, a will. Boy, they did everything in their power to destroy it. I mean, they, meaning the creators, trying to find a way. And the actor is, John Guare came up to me last night at my sister's opening, which of course is a major hit, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but anyway, John Guare comes up and he says, I love you actors. How you could put up with what you had to put up with, I mean, in terms of all that sort of stuff. And that was, 
there's a there's a marvelous testimony to the human spirit in an actor. It was wonderful for you. Marvelous right. for you. What you were shaking your head. Why have you had? Did you have? A no, I didn't have quite as dramatic as uh, an experience as Bob, but I did. Uh, for me, it was like a personal Waterloo. I was in uh, the Marriage of Figaro at Circle of the Square, directed by Andre Serban, and we were. Uh, he, it was a recapitulation of a production that he had done once before at the Guthrie, and we were from the very first day given the exact blocking of other people, another company, three years ago, which was very difficult. And we tried to go with it and then institute, you know, changes and, and offer up something of our own, and that was not readily received. And um, <clears throat> I was playing the Countess, and um, I didn't get great reviews, and uh, it was uh, personally, I, I had never been in anything where I was there was never any discussion at all of our relationships and who we were or why we were there or anything. And you try and learn to make up all that stuff yourself anyway to give you something to go on. But it constantly changed, and I have never, ever felt so naked on the stage. I was just standing out there as Dana for the first time in my life. I didn't know I wasn't the Countess. I didn't know what I was doing out there. I actually cried on stage one night. I felt so sorry for myself because I didn't know what I was doing there and I was so embarrassed and I thought all these people are here and I don't know what I'm doing. And what I discovered was this freedom that they're talking about. I thought it obviously doesn't matter. I don't have to know what I'm doing. They don't care. <laughs> and after that, it just became fun, and I just got out there and acted as dumb as I possibly could, and it seemed to get better. So I... <laughs> it was a great lesson. But we do care. Well... We do care. But I think that's creativity, though. I think you get to a point. I think the great actors get, have that. They get to that kind of, I'm not going to allow myself my indulgence, yeah. you know, no, I'm going to, right, I'm going to open up my soul to the material at hand and allow myself to flow through it. And I think that's key, yeah. you know, in terms of getting to some very... It's like living on the edge. I mean, you just <laughs> do it. <you> know? <laughs> well, I, I'm not, I, I have... What, Morgan? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> once you get on stage, you can't just say, well, this, this is not going to work and walk off. You got to, yeah. you know, you got to go all the way to the end and... I was in a terrible play once. I knew, like you say, first day of rehearsal, I said, like, what is this? I knew why I was there, though. It was my second Broadway play. They had my name above the lights. They weren't paying me any money, but it couldn't hurt me. You know, I don't care what it was. It wasn't going to be able to hurt me. But it was, it was dreadful. And the worst part for me about being in something that you know already is terrible is that you're lying. It's like going on television and say, use this product. It's the best you're ever going to use. And you've never used it. I did that once, too. <laughs> People pay whatever they were paying in 1969 to go to a Broadway play. And every actor in the play could tell them, hey. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, um, well, you can't do that, but I think what you're saying is that you rise above the material if you're working. You rise above the material and Some you material, do the very best that you, you can do, the do best despite you can, But there's a lot of material that. that you but can wind up But there is an obligation you you cannot, to the audience who is, has is, paid is, whatever it is that they think that paid. You can rise above some stuff. But you know? John, you yeah. said something at the very beginning about if you ever decided to be an actor, you think that's <laughs> I like that line too. when it was. And, and, and what if that big gift? What was it that made you decide to be an actor? 
I really have no idea. Really. <laughs> I, I really you know, don't. I, okay. I, I kind of have interpreted that for myself that you really never had a choice. It wasn't a decision <coughs> you had to make. Yeah, I never, it was never a decision I had to make. But that really. was it? Yeah. That you went with the players? Was that the first performance that you did, the first professional? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. <coughs> and, and then you, that was it. You were an actor from then on. I mean, we talked about quitting quite often, usually after seeing our latest show. <laughs> but uh, we just <coughs> kept going. Uh -huh. And um, I, I was thinking about when you were talking about late night comic, I did a show once in Chicago, which uh, this very good <coughs> Chicago director named Robert Falls, who runs the Goodman now, decided he wanted to do this Peter Hanke thing called A Sorrow Beyond Dreams, which a, uh, he's a German novelist, and it's a novella about <coughs> his own mother's suicide. And he asked me, did I want to do it? And it would be sort of like a one-man type of thing. And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I know I'm maybe not really good playing with other actors and stuff, but you know, I think I may be sort of worse off by myself. But, uh, so anyway, he talked me into it, and we did it. And this was when they still had David Mamet's theater in Chicago, the this, this St. Nicholas, which um, this play closed the St. Nicholas permanently. But um, I can remember one of my favorite things, and I just uh, was in the middle of this play, which was about an hour 30, unless I felt the audience really, really was in a hateful mood, and then it was about kind of like an hour two <laughs> or 58 minutes. But I can remember this businessman, because I had to talk to the audience the whole time. It was this terribly kind of Germanic deal. And I was talking to the audience, and I saw this guy up there, and he was in his business suit. You know, and he was kind of watching and he wasn't really happy or unhappy he was just being there then all of a sudden in this middle of the thing about my mother and what she did on the day she committed suicide he goes ah <laughs> <laughs> oh boy <laughs> and then he kind of started looking around in the play they had done before at St. Nicholas, and he wasn't being hateful or anything in any way. It's just sort of like, well, yeah, I pretty much got this, and I, I've sat this out now. I've given you like 45 minutes, and i got to take a break. And the play, the play they had done before at St. Nicholas was Teeth and Smiles, David Harris' play about a rock band. And so there was still a, a drum set, a trap set, back in the wings and he got up and he lit a cigarette he was in the theater you know and the play was kind of going on i was kind of like <laughs> and but sort of laughing he just looked back there and he talked to his wife about what he saw back there you know he was like honey there's a trap set back <laughs> and you know but anyway did he play it <laughs> no i that was next i sort of wish he would have Oh, and you survived that and went on then? <laughs> yeah, because I, I mean, I w would agree with what everyone else said. I mean, it's not, 
I, I don't even know that I found really inner resources. And actually, that performance was probably a lot more successful for me in, in terms of degree of difficulty than, than many other things I had done. Sure. But, you know, I mean, sometimes you go out and people throw programs at you, and that's just <laughs> the way it goes, really. What do you do when that happens? I dodge. <laughs> <laughs> how do you react? Oh, God, how do you react to bad? How do I react? How to do react to critics? You cannot get into this. Um, um, you like, you've been fortunate. Have you had any bad reviews? Well, uh, to to it's sort of embarrassing, but to be honest, I haven't read the reviews <laughs> of this play and. Uh -huh. I have not read a set of reviews since I did. Uh, I'm m more prone to read them when I direct, and even then I don't do it uh, in what I would call habitually. Uh, I haven't read reviews since I did Arms and the Man here two or three years ago. Is this a conscious decision? Or do you uh, so I felt like um, several of the reviews of that particular show were so um, silly and um, uh, I can remember reading one in particular which was sort of about how I hated the play and just wanted to make fun of it or something. And Really, generally, I, I feel as an actor, it's better, at least it has been for me on this. I, I really prefer not to know. No, it's I interesting. Uh, Frank mm -hmm. Langella on, on the performance panel said pretty much the same thing, that he did not read reviews because he said it is such a, a lonely kind of job that you're doing at uh, 10.30 or 10.40, the audience is cheering you and, and you're the biggest thing in the whole world and then you go to your dressing room and there is no one there and you are all alone. So you have to have something within you that says, I know what I'm doing and that's the thing that I have to do, regardless of what anybody else says or what the audience is doing. I, I have to have But I should say, I don't mind reading them at all. And this has been very particular to this play. I mean, uh, but I, I certainly have always read them. I mean, you know, and it never really bothers me. But in this particular play, I haven't. I was going to say that even when they're good, I stopped reading them several years ago when I worked with Rosemary Harris, and she never read them, and we talked about it once. I thought, well, it really does give you grief. Even when they're good, they frequently point out particulars of a performance that you may not be aware of yeah. as a performer, and you suddenly become self-conscious yeah. because mm -hmm. it's an organic thing, and you're just doing the best you can in this seamless way, and then suddenly something is, is pulled out, and it destroys the integrity of what you're doing because you become overly conscious of it. So even a good, a good review can be uh, destructive to your mm -hmm. feelings about what you're doing.
does not happen when people just come up to you and point out things yeah. that they're I don't like that, that either. Yeah, but yeah. sometimes oh, you can't. I just don't know how you did it. It was just so perfect that you that did. With that moment when you uh, did the da yeah. 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 No, please <laughs> don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think reviews should come from peers. Wow. I, think that's, I think there's an objectivity when a peer looks at a piece. Uh, well, I find it difficult. Not well, if they want to be doing your role. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I understand that. I don't read reviews because I find it, uh, it's like an objective treatise on something that you're working on that they didn't go, like they did not know what it was before the reviewers in my particular show. So I find the reviews to be after the fact, quite frankly. Um, and I don't like reading them because I agree with Frank in the sense that there's a personal, there's, I have to go out there, do you know what I mean? And, I, and as and going out there, that's not a bad thing. I think that's an opportunity every night um, to discover and to learn about my role. And I find mm -hmm. that reviews can stilt that growth, bad or positive or negative. Mm -hmm. Also, one other thing, and I, I would say this much more as a director, um, you know, one, one could go to any athletic contests. I mean, say you went to see the 76ers play, I don't know, the Bullets or something, and uh, Julius Irving scored three points. Then would you go home and say, the guy can't play? I mean, <laughs> which you would, theoretically. And plays are very much living organisms, and to have the whole business of a play and the whole fact of whether people come to see it tied to one show is is the only I think it, it's very very damaging it's damaging for the reviewer and it is exceptionally damaging to the theater um, because on any I mean I think if they saw a play four or five times or a week that I don't believe this about uh, you know well they go they see it once no I'm sorry uh, even a lot of audience people don't do that and it, to have a really informed opinion about it I think you would have to see something at least several times how would you have it done if you had your druthers and said for the theater because it's a, something that's and very for important the critic to us also for the critic also how would you have it handled go every night for a week you know we do it for a year <laughs> or two <laughs> I mean it's true. we can sit through it <laughs> I think if there is, if there is such a Good thing point. as a as a critic if there is such a thing, no, 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 if there is such a thing as a critic, it's an audience. Right. It's a body of people. Right. I mean, not one person out there is going to be able to say, well, this is a great play, or this is, but when you do a play and you got that fourth ingredient, which is from the playwright to the actor to the director, and all of the stuff that makes it, when you have that, the final ingredient, which is the audience, then you got a critic. Other than that, you just got somebody who's voicing an opinion. They'll tell you yeah. too. The audience will tell you. Yeah, yeah. always. You know. The other thing is, do you give your best performance when you know critics are out there? <laughs> no. I mean, I think can't. the knowledge that the critics are out there alters your performance in some way. It's, it's, 
it may be, you know, a very infinitesimal thing, but it alters it. I have a question. Because your you're, you are self, yeah. I have well. a question talking about best performance. Do you find, as actors, uh, maybe I'm getting older, but do you find that matinee performances <clears throat> are more involved? I don't know what am I trying to say, that there's a more... I enjoy doing matinees more than I do evenings, but I don't know why. Yeah. I'm resting in this for one thing. <laughs> yes, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't been up as long, so I have more energy. Is that what it is? I, I think I know that's a lot of it for me. I have more energy to put into it, and I can enjoy it. The best shows of this play are always in uh, of me and my girl are always in matinees. It's very interesting. I wonder why you feel Saturday. that. Saturday. Why are matinees that much better? Are they that the, the the people? come with a different expectation to them than Well, it's not the audience for me, personally. Uh, mm -hmm. There's something about me in a matinee that's more available well, or accessible. Jane feels that way, too. Well, I think the rest is a Jane big thing. that way. Well, you were starting to say something, Courtney, but... I, Saturday matinee, I have the best time. Uh, maybe it's because I, I come in and I'm like, oh, God, i got to do a matinee. On Saturday, we got two shows, and we got another show on Sunday. But I, I, I usually surprise myself. I come in, and I'm like, oh, God. And, ah. Right, right. <laughs> I'm in the middle of something that's really wonderful, yeah. and the audience is, you know. Are the audiences usually good at that? Uh, very good. They're very alive. Very good. That's hard for somebody to do a demographic thing about matinee audiences versus evening. Because a lot of people think that the only time to go is in the evening. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think that's because people are caught up with going to the theater as an event mm. and being right. seen or whatever right. rather than just going to see a show and it's usually people who go to matinees are really there they just want to be there to That's see the, the show and so right. they make a wonderful audience right. That's a very important point which you're going to take up again we're going to break right now and give you time for thinking of the questions that you would like to ask the panel and then we're coming right back and I'll continue with this discussion and with your questions so please think about it. Don't go too far away and come back and prepare. Hello. We're at the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. This distinguished panel is being co-moderated by Jean Dalrymple and Ed Wilson, and they have been doing a wonderful job of discussing what it is to work in the theater. And right now, we are going to turn it over to the audience for questions and answers, and which I hope, questions, and I hope they will get, give them the answers on what it is to work in the theater. Thank you very much for being here, and we're going to start right with our first question. Come up, please. My name is Barbara, and my question is towards John Malkovich. I was wondering, being that you worked in film, which do you find more fulfilling, the film or the theater? Because I know that it's so grueling, theater every day, and which do you just find more fulfilling to do? I prefer the theater because, um, I mean, really, in the end of, of a film performance, you have really precious little control over. And that's, well, I wouldn't say I was a control freak or anything. That's not something I enjoy terribly, really. Hi, this question is for Mr. Malkovich. My name is Melanie Konomikes. Do you find that you had more creative freedom working in an ensemble like the Steppenwolf since you knew each other's work better? And do you still work together? I know that you worked with Terry Kinney and Balm and Gilead. Yeah, well, most, most of the cast of, or, or half of the cast of Bum and Gilead were, were people from our company in Chicago. 
Um, and there are, I would say, good things about both. Um, I think it's very good to start training in an ensemble because if people pay particular attention to the acting of it, which you sort of have to do in an ensemble, I think it can aid in the process of becoming a little more versatile, probably. You're not just cast always for doing a specific thing. Thank you. Hi, my name is Greg Sargent, and my question is for Mr. Freeman. Uh, what advice would you give young minority actors just starting out in the business? Get out. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking of Bob Hope's line, don't go. <laughs> no, um, uh, I don't, uh, I don't know, I don't have a, you know, like a, a, a bit of real heavy sage advice, except that uh, if you really know you want to do this, then do it. But uh, that means just work at it. You want to be an actor. Prepare yourself. Watch everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, my name is Karen Graff, and I have a question for Jane Summerhay. Uh, how did your experience as an understudy in a play help you, and can you describe your experiences? Um, I stood by, I assume you're talking about the standby for Ann Miller. Right, and Sugar Baby. Yeah, I stood by for Ann Miller. Uh, I was playing the uh, second female role at the time. So um, I'll never forget the first time I had to go on. It was <coughs> New Year's, uh, <laughs> New Year's Day. And I was at a party in the afternoon, and I thought, oh, thank God. I don't have to do that tonight. I'd never been on, you know. And I said to somebody, I've got to leave. I have to be an ingenue in an hour. And I got to the theater, and they said, guess what, kid? You're on. And um, it, I, so I went on uh, in a play I had been playing in. Um, I hadn't had a rehearsal in six months for the role. But I'd been listening to the music every night, and it was not in an alien space. Um, it was in a space I'd been playing in, so I felt very at home. Everybody was enormously supportive. Um, again, it, it sort of, my intuition took over, and I just said, well, <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? I'm just going to do it. And uh, sort of freedom came out of that, and um, I had fun. My name is Bernard Cabot, and I have a question for Miss Ivy. In what way, if any, are New York audiences different than audiences in towns like Atlanta? Um, well, uh, I feel that New York audiences are more sophisticated, more knowledgeable, and uh, more critical than the audience that I was accustomed to playing to in Atlanta when I was there. You may not know this, but in Atlanta, no matter what you do, you will receive a standing ovation. <laughs> I like that. That's great. I'd like to uh, take the prerogative of asking, asking a question now, and I'd like it to go around. I want to know how you feel about auditioning and each one to ask to answer the question as, as quickly as you can so we can sort of have a round robin. And how important is the agent in your lives? 
twofold question. Okay, so we start with you, Mr. Lepone. It depends on how much you want the job as far as the audition is concerned. Right. I think if you really want the job, then an audition can be a terrifying experience. It can also be an opportunity. It depends on where you are creatively, personally, and how much you want the job. For me, if I want the job, I really apply myself, and then it becomes an opportunity to explore the text. Um, as far as an agent is concerned, uh, and I'm actually becoming interested in auditioning more and more the older I get because I don't have the, the, uh, as much of a need. Mm -hmm. So I'm finding myself, again, freer and, and actually look forward to the opportunity to meet people and to talk about a role and to also give an opportunity, have an opportunity to perform it or audition for it. As far as an agent, I think that's essential, I mean, in terms of guidance and kind How of... How do you find one when you're not a star? I don't think you do. <laughs> I think they find you. Exactly. Jane? Uh, I think auditions are different for musicals than for non-musicals. Um, mm -hmm. An audition, uh, the th I have to keep reminding myself, it's not to entertain. It's, it's a whole, I think it's a whole different technique than performing. And some people audition well, extremely well, and that's really what you get. Um, some people don't audition well, and and then if, if, they, if they do the role, you find all kinds of things that weren't there. It, it's, it's, it's extremely important, and I think you have to find your own way of dealing with that. Mm -hmm. As far as an agent cons is concerned, I think in, they vary. They go from being a sophisticated answering service, you know, <laughs> taking messages and just relaying them, um, to uh, really setting you up. At the for beginning, jobs. though, you need... At the beginning, I, I got my first agent by being recommended to somebody mm -hmm. and went in and um, I had to audition for them and then they came and saw me in something and signed me. Mm -hmm. um, I, again, I think it's, it's relative. It's an individual thing. I, I was lucky. I know some people have, have a, a lot of trouble because it's like a catch-22. Well, we want to see you in something. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't... Uh, you can't see me in something until I get a job and I need an agent for it. So that's the problem. Most that's of the problem. Yeah. Morgan? I uh, hate to audition. Um, I don't do it well. Thank you so much for being <laughs> here. And uh, although uh, a couple of, uh, of major jobs that I've gotten, I've gotten because I auditioned very well. But as a rule, I don't audition well, um, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I, I have a, a clearer head about the work if, uh, if it's like saying, how do you feel about doing this, you know, and, uh, say, well, I'd like to do it, or no, I'm not right for it, but I can decide, you know, knock wood, uh, I have a lot of occasion to do that. Agent-wise, I'd be a sh lost sheep without Jeff. Uh, bless my agent. I'm still in this business because of him. Thank you. Dana? Oh, um, I used to think I was real good at auditions when I was young and just coming along, and now I don't seem to do well at them at all. I don't know what's happened, but my perception is that I no longer do well in auditions, and consequently I get very nervous about them because I... I would love to see them as an opportunity, but I always seem to be, to me, to feel like an opportunity for failure, which is not a nice thing to have reinforced. Um, so I get very nervous about them, and uh, it also depends very much on, I go through tremendous mood swings about my, in my confidence, about just some days I'll f feel like I 
can handle things better than other days. And on those days when I'm feeling good, I can do a lot better and I can interview a lot better and I'm much more relaxed and easy with people on the days when I'm feeling shy and paranoid. I'm obviously not going to go anywhere and everybody just thinks you're a creep. So it's a very difficult thing and I've tried to figure out what vitamins make me feel good but I can't seem to get it down so that I can control that. Um, and I, my agent is a wonderful person and uh, I, I feel the strongest about my agent. I, I, my agent gives me such tremendous support, um, such belief. And for me, that's sort of the main thing I think that my agent does for me is really How help, help me to, to believe that? in me. Is, is, is this last agent? My last agent I got after being in something, my first major thing in New York, which was Present Laughter, and I did sort of go agent hunting. Mm -hmm. I asked other people in the company if their agents had come, would they discreetly ask if they might be interested in talking to me? And I went and talked to several different agents and went with the one that I'm with now. Before that, I had been with an agent, and I had known the lady from Atlanta, you know, old-time friend who had said she would work for me if I ever came to New York. So it was a sort of an in. Yes. I, uh, I'm new at this, so uh, as soon as I got out of school in 86, um, I uh, began auditioning, and um, all of a sudden, uh, in the middle of getting trying to get a rhythm down, I, Hamburger Hill came up, so I didn't really get a chance to. I mean, that was great that I got a, a, you know, a role, but I really I was starting to get into my rhythm of auditioning, and um, I tend to like to read better than I tend to like to do pieces, and I, I I haven't had to do any audition pieces yet, um, but uh, I like to read for people, I like to meet people um, sometimes. My moods are, uh, I feel very good, I can go in and have a good time, and other times I feel very paranoid, and, and I don't uh, do very well, I don't meet people very well. But, um, <coughs> and my agent I got um, um, through Fences, the first time we did it at Yale in 85, uh, um, a fellow from, uh, uh, Brian Mann from, was it Smith Friedman, and he had just, uh, he said, you know, come on down to uh, New York and, you know, see me during the summer if you have a chance. And, so I did that, and all of a sudden he switched over to ICM. So we kept talking through uh, my last year at Yale. And uh, after I graduated, I continued talking to him. And about a, three or four or five months later, I said, OK, let's why don't see if we can find something together. And uh, <laughs> I'm, we're feeling each other out. And it's, uh, uh, he's, he's moving off to LA now, to uh, the LA office of ICM. So I'm going to, his assistant is being made an agent. and. Uh, um, she, I really like her, so she, I'm feeling her out, and we're trying to find our way, um, so that's, that's me. John? Well, I, I really haven't auditioned all that much for things. I have uh, directed a lot, so I've had a lot of people audition for me, and I like to watch actors, um, do anything, but I, I find it fairly depressing, really. Uh, because, um, you know, when I had auditions here for Bomb and Gilead, I mean, there would be, oh, a hundred people who could do it, really. And there, that's just not much fun, I don't think. How does a director give a performer confidence in, in auditioning? 
Well, I, I don't think you ever cut people off, and I think you treat them uh, professionally. And you How much guidance do you give them for an, an audition? Well, that really depends um, on what it is and what the play is and everything. But mostly I try to keep them from, if you can, which of course you can, but I try to keep them from being too nervous. You know. Do you have an agent? <laughs> yes, I have an agent. Um, and uh, they're very good agents, although I was sort of upset with them last week because he came to the opening of the play I'm doing now and I wanted this gold wristwatch he had and I still don't have it so. if he's watching he's about out of the business thank you very much we'll be sending our questions now hi I'm Robin Lee and this is for Mr. Vance or any of the others uh, in your current production, in rehearsal, did you get a chance to rehearse the relationships, uh, perhaps away from the script during the rehearsal process, as well as, you know, what you call rehearsing the play? I'm very much interested in your all of your rehearsal processes. Um, uh, you, you mean dealing with each other off, outside of the play? Um, yes, with with the relationships, but not with perhaps what's actually written page for page. Just what, what's going like on uh, between the people. Mm -hmm. you know, like improvisational um, yeah, exercises? Yeah, possibly, sure. Um, Do you work that way? With this particular, with Fences, no, we didn't. Uh, it, it, we kind of developed it because um, luckily we, after we finished in, at Yale in 85, I thought it was, you know, it's over, it was a wonderful experience. Um, but it was done again, and so we all came back together again. So it was very unique in that sense because we were, all of us were together we didn't have a new cast member or something like that so we developed uh, relationships with each other that are very strong now just because of the fact that we have been coming back together each time then we did it in Chicago in 86 and then we did it in San Francisco in 87 and then we came in so um, we've uh, any the relationship a lot of what's happening on stage is just uh, is because we are so much now a family uh, off stage and uh, care about each other so much um, so that it, it can help it spill onto the, the stage and just, you know, um, add to the play, so. Sure, thank you. Manton, Irene Manton. I would like to address my question to Dana Ivey. Since theaters have been wired for sound, and the actor no longer needs the voice that projects like the whisper that is heard in the balcony. Do you feel that something has been taken away from the art of voice and projection or something is missing? Well, that's an interesting question because we've just had a lot of trouble with our tiny little play moving it into a 300-seat theater to try and project some of the very, very quiet moments and intimate moments in that play. <clears throat> but I do, in principle, definitely believe that the actor should be in control of that and should know how to do it and should learn how to do it and that something is lost when you um, have to mic. Um, we've gotten so used now, I think our whole civilization has gotten so used to a presence of sound that comes electronically from the music we listen to and 
radios and TV, everything is so enhanced that somehow um, we seem disappointed when the human voice is by itself. It sounds sort of thin and naked. But um, I prefer to try and let it do the coloration um, that's required. And I do think we've lost something, but sometimes it's just it's necessary and required that you have mics. Thank you. I think you have time for one more question. Hi, my name is Chris Dubeck, and I'd like to ask a quick question of Robert Lupone. You were talking before about resources and will, and I wanted to ask, what is the best training for the theater? Failure. Pardon? Failure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, you can go through you can go through four years of school, that, and it will give you theory. Yeah, that's yeah. the best training. Failure. You can get some real quick lessons real fast. <laughs> How do you get to overcome that failure? That's the measure of the individual and the actor. That's right. what you learn in school. Okay. And at home. And at home, exactly. Yeah. And in religion, or wherever else you find resource for yourself that makes you want to be an actor in the first place. Do you know? What does make one want to be an actor in the first place? The human spirit. Is there anything else that you could do? Yo, sure. I could be a missionary. I could be a lot of things. There's something about there's something about trying to find the human spirit in many different avenues of expression, as opposed to just being, a, let's say, a doctor, which is certainly involved with the human mm -hmm. spirit, nine to five every day. There's something about the challenge of like me trying to be funny. That's a total. George C. Scott said it, or somebody said it. Self-discovery. If you can get the human spirit through self-discovery, that's the joy of being an actor. Very good answer. Thank you. Hi, my name is Maureen Sullivan, and this is to Ms. Summerhays. I want to know, who is the biggest thrill working with in your career, and how did they influence your performance or your career? Well, I don't think I can... Who is the biggest thrill? Nicky Rooney. Uh, <laughs> Nicky Rooney. <laughs> I don't think I can... I don't think I can say one person. Um, was the biggest thrill. Uh, I've worked with good directors. I liked uh, working with Michael Bennett. Um, he was a genius. I liked working with Mickey for certain reasons. I think um, Jim Dale, certainly, and Robert Lindsay. Um, everybody has their own thing, and, and every, everyone is terrific in his own way. And I just I take, try and take whatever I, can, whatever I can get from each person. Hi, I'm Fran McManus. I have a question for Robert Lupone. In terms of style or theme, what are the things you hope to see in a new play? I, I mean, James Earl Jones talks about Loser being the most interesting of characters for an actor to play. I happen to think that's an appropriate perspective of the human condition in the sense that we all have aspirations. And I think as far as themes, or st themes particularly, what I particularly respond to is people going from point A to point B and the struggle that they go through to get there. Point B hopefully being a more evolved, more happier, more uh, enlightened place. So I, I like plays that respond to a condition of life or a condition of a character which starts in one place and through struggle and obstacles he evolves to a greater place. I think that's what theater's about. The, the existential aspect of theater does not turn me on. The futility of life on this planet in art does not turn me on. I happen to certainly would never have survived the show I just did if I believed that. <laughs> so I happen to believe that, that the the thematically what turns me on is the soul and its and its aspiration for evolution. Uh, as far as style is concerned, I'm not style I like 
truth. And I know that's not a style, but, for, but that's what style is to me. If, I don't want to go into uh, any kind of particular acting, naturalism, realism, uh, you know, I don't want romantic, I don't want to go through it. I, I don't believe in that stuff. I don't believe personally. I believe in honesty and truth, and I think any play worth its salt in the material manifests that, and that's the style of the piece. Do you know? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Once more, we have to bring our seminar to a close, and once more I say that there isn't enough time either to thank these panelists or to convey our gratitude to the panelists for giving us the time that they have in sharing their knowledge with us. This is one of the programs of the American Theater Wing, and we do this as part of our belief in sharing and our belief in that knowledge must be passed on from generation to generation and from actor to actor, from playwright to director. And this was started at the Wing School many, many years ago when returning veterans came to the school and they rehoned their trade and then they went out to hospitals and they put on shows at hospitals and today the American Theatre Wing continues to do that. We bring professional shows to hospitals and to institutions. We bring professional schools, we professional talent into schools, into the lowest grade, into the first grade. We start there by giving them, through our Saturday Theater for Children program, what it is to line up to make a commitment to go to the theater. We talked about the difference between an evening audience and the matinee performance, and I think uh, Dana Ivey said that uh, they get dressed up and they make this an event to go to the theater at night. The theater is an event, but it is also a habit, and it, that's the important thing of, of the theater. That's what the magic of the theater is, mm -hmm. that you have to go to the theater. And that's the message that the American Theater Wing continues to say, go to the theater and make it a habit. And although the Tony Awards of a very important part of the wing. What we do year-round makes the Tony Award a very, very important award indeed. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the wing, and this is coming to, to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located on 42nd Street, the heart of Times Square, and I thank everybody for being here.